welcome to episode 393 of Doctor Day, a Doctor Who podcast. My name is David, and I'm here with Hello. Today we're going to talk about the final episode of City of Death. Yes, we see the progression of uh, accelerated life to death for uh, Kerensky again, and then Duggan says, You're mad, you're inhuman. To which uh, the Count replies that, I take that as a compliment, thank you. Um, Romana tries to bluff that, you know, I'm from another, you figured out I'm from another planet, why should I care? He says, well, we'll just kill Duggan here. And she says, no, don't. So she knows, he knows that uh, she does care and she was just bluffing. So he says, well, you know, keep Duggan as uh, insurance and they have him locked in the room. And he has her getting to work. And she says, yes, she'll help. The, uh, um, sorry, actually, so he'll keep Duggan as an insurance policy. And then the Count goes on to tell how he was split in time, the time vortex uh, in his ship into 12 different parts. And he wants to go back the 400 million years ago before he pressed the fateful button in his ship that caused this explosion and him to be fractured and splintered over time. Um, she says how his, his machine, his time field will not work as it is and he tells her to build him a field stabilizer and once she's heard his story of how he just wants to go back to before his ship blew up, she says that she she agrees to help him. The doctor is uh, brought into the chalet chateau chateau rather um, by one of the thugs of the counts under guard and gun, and he's talking on about the guard being quiet, not having much to say. Um, and says, oh, he said that to a person he knew long ago. His name was Shakespeare. You like Shakespeare, Countess? And sees that she's come in the room. And uh, she says, she comes over to from the bookshelf and she brings a folio of papers, presents it to the doctor, and it's a draft of Hamlet. And he looks at it and reads it and reads along and questions one some words in it. And uh, she said something oh it's genuine and he tell the handwriting he says yeah it's mine he says he sprained his wrist writing sonnets and he objects to uh, the, the wording he says I told him it was a mixed metaphor and she just scoffs at him having uh, saying he's mad for saying that he's met Shakespeare he says well do you think your count got this he says he's not who you think he is um I don't think you know him as well as as well as you think. He's, he's uh, he says to her that you know you're you're blinded to to what he really is. What's he really doing in the cellar? And he she seems to have some pause at that. So the doctor expounds on the fact that he's a that the count is a Jaggeroth, and he's uh, been here four hundred million years, and he's trying to save his people and get back through, travel through time, and she laughs and laughs at this. Herman comes to collect the doctor and bring him down to the cellar because the Count wants to see him. 
but she looks curious. So she goes over to the bookshelf again, pulls out another book. Inside are uh, some folded papers, and so she pulls them out, looks at them. One of them is a architectural drawing of the Great Pyramid. There's a papyrus she unrolls that as she gets to the end, there are the various figures of the Egyptian gods that we're used to seeing, Anubis and um, uh, Seth. And we get to the end, and there's a picture in Egyptian style of the Jaggeroth with the one-eyed green face, as the doctor had described him, actually. And so she is very visibly upset by so the doctor comes into the cellar and says, Oh, I haven't seen you in about 400 years, Count. Um, Asked Ramana what she's doing, and where's Duggan? Duggan's in, locked in a little room. He says, Get me out of here. Um, and he tells the Count that, and you should forget about going back in time. And he says, Why? He says, Because I'm going to stop you. Um, the Count says, uh, No, you're going to work with me. You're going to work for me and help me, and yes, you will, for the good of yourself, for this girl, and for Duggan here. But the doctor warns about going back in time and changing history as that, and then the Count just says he doesn't care at all what happens to humanity based on his actions or reactions for going back in time. The Count goes out of the basement tells them to lock them in the room so uh, he goes back up to uh, the sitting room and the countess is there but she's got a gun pointed at him and she asks him what he is and who he really is and he says that he's says who he is and um, says he confesses and then he says how easy it was to deceive her uh, trinkets here and there and uh, material things and he says that he is a he is a very a much older race and a much superior race and you will show her who he is and he takes off his mask and reveals himself this squiggly pesto pasta monster face he's revealed himself and he says she is very um, upset, very shocked by this, and um, getting hysterical. And he says, um, oh, I see you're wearing your bracelet. Not just a pretty thing, but um, an actual, actually a very useful device. And he um, activates this something on his wrist to watch or something, and it causes the bracelet to spark and cause her great pain, and it kills her, and she falls to the floor. Um, as they're trapped in their little room, the doctor and Ramana are talking, and she uh, realizes now that he is Jagaroth, and she wouldn't have never helped him had she known the full story 
of adding the dashes, but now you have. And he explains how the cracks in time that they felt when they first arrived was the uh, the count and Kerensky trying attempting um, to use a time field, and uh, then they talk about the, the fact that Romanus built the stabilizer for only like two minutes worth of time, so that he should just have enough time to get back to his ship and stop himself from pressing the button. So there's some restrictions built in, and maybe they can restrict that even further. But only they get out of his room. Maybe we ask Duggan. So Duggan takes his cue and just runs into the door and smashes it out, down, and they get out of the room. But uh, they go to try to work on the time field, but Jagroth is already there with the gun. He says that he knows the limitations of the machine, has plenty of time for him, and that he has uh, set the machine, his machine, uh, to, I think he says self-destruct, or to not be able to be touched, or interfered with, I think, so. Can't remember, but something uh, like that. Yeah. So the, the doctor and Ramana and Dugan say, uh, have to head off after him. So they all run out to the chateau and across Paris, uh, finally to get to the TARDIS. As they get to the, the gallery where the TARDIS is, we see two very snooty art buffs talking about a piece of artwork, and we notice that they're talking, analyzing to each other the TARDIS in various appreciation and lofty um, terms that I'm not even sure I heard in my art history classes. Um, and then the Doctor, Ramana, and Duggan come in, enter the TARDIS, and dematerialize. And then they just continue on. It's like stunning. Absolutely stunning. As the TARDIS just dematerializes. Um, and so they get 400 million years back in time. Um, the doctor spies the uh, Jagroth ship, and so they walk closer to it. And then he marvels over the fact that well, this is the future of humanity, and he scoops something up in his hand, and it's got primordial sludge slime, you know, saying that you know, this will become the humanity it's just waiting for a dose of radiation, and says, you know puts the slime in Duggan's hand and then says, you know, and the radiation will be this blowing up of a Jagaroth ship, so this is why, you know, we have to stop him or the humans will cease to exist. Just then, of course, the Skyroth has arrived from his travel in their time field, and he tries to get past them to walk to a ship to stop himself from destroying himself and splintering himself. So the doctor tries to prevent him <clears throat> says it, and you see that the, you can't change this history. The death of your race will be the birth of another, a new one, and still he doesn't care. So he says, as they're arguing, Duggan steps up and just clocks him and knocks the Count, the Scaroth, into the primordial sludge, and then he disappears because his time is up, and he's... Um, going back to his time field, back to the chateau. So they go back to the TARDIS and take off too so they can uh, 
so they can catch up with him as the uh, ship explodes again, as it did, as it's supposed to. So the Count returns back to his cellar of his chateau and rather Scaroth, because he's not wearing his Count mask anymore. Scaroth returns. Uh, Herman has been putting something in the cellar, sees this terrible figure of the pesto pasta monster and doesn't know what it is. He's never seen the Count in this form. And he picks up a box of something and throws it at him and knows says, Herman, no! And the box breaks the field and um, does he disappear or just die? And he, he kills her. Scaroth is gone. Scaroth's gone anyway. Gone. So. <clears throat> the next scene we have is Eiffel Tower. Dr. Ramon and Duggan are um, up on the observation deck and they're talking about the Mona Lisa in the Louvre and he says, how can we, you know, you leave it as the, the Mona Lisa in the Louvre is a fake. It's got felt tip pen that says fake on it. If they x-ray it, they'll see it. And he says, well, it was still painted by Leonardo. So they discuss it for a bit and then they uh, dig and ask, you know, uh, where they're from, really. And the doctor kind of bluffs it off. And it's like, well, to know where you're from, I guess you really need to figure out where you want to be and work backwards. So, goodbye. <laughs> and so they, they say goodbye, and they, they leave. And Duggan looks through the, the little shop there and picks up a Mona Lisa postcard and looks at it. And walks over to the railing, and the doctor and Amana are down on the greens, and they wave and shout goodbye, Duggan, and um, we end. So I thought that um, sixteen point one million viewers, which is a Doctor Who um, record. Yeah, it's the most viewers for any single episode ever. Even the new series hasn't come close. Wow. I, I wasn't sure that would apply to the new series. Um, that's great. The Tenth Doctor's max was 13.4 or something like that. Wow. Which is like one of the, I think the first or second episode of this story was like 13. 14.1 14. 14. Oh, for 14. the second episode. This is one of those rare episodes where each episode gained viewership. Yeah. Each one had more viewers than the previous one. Almost all of them drop off after the second yeah and it's like depending on almost as if that like if it's a four part after the third if the story is interesting enough then maybe they'll hear from some of their friends who did watch it more mm -hmm. people will tune in to see the conclusion yep and it, it usually comes back up for the for the ending not always but that used to be the pattern I noticed when when I did take note of what the, the numbers for the viewers were, that there was that pattern. It was kind of okay because there's a hype of the new story and then it would drop off sometimes right away after the first, but mostly after mm -hmm. the second. And then if it happened to be the longer, like five or six parters, then there would be that really big lull in the middle. 
what I think is funny though is that pretty much everything I've read says that this series was not particularly well received. Mm. It got panned fairly badly huh? because they thought it was too goofy, too slapstick almost. But I think the fact that it gained viewers <laughs> the entire time sort of speaks to the opposite. Yeah, it? it points out the opposite. Yeah. Maybe reviewers didn't care for it, but obviously the viewing public did. Yeah. And now it's probably one of the best or most um, favorite episodes of by a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Most a lot of people would name it as their favorite, let's put it that way. Mhm. Well, it was one of the handful of episode of stories that my little local uh, public television station had because mm-hmm. it was the first one I saw, um, and I would. Our station didn't have this, the whole series like you were able to see some earlier first, well, first, second, third mm-hmm. Doctor ones, and I only got to see these, um, but to. They must have had been able to pick, somebody picked on one side or the other, what they were going to be able to show in the Bay Area, anyway. So, and it was one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so I I noticed that. It was a record, and that's very uh, good to know that it it even stands now. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Very good. Um, I think it's very funny that Duggan's violent nature mm-hmm. came back to help. Yeah. It's like they started to take advantage of it because, you know. Yeah. Um, Twice. Yeah. When they're, when they're trapped in the room, it's like, well, you know, what are we going to do? Let's ask Duggan. Boom. Just bashes through the door. Um. Into the arms of the Jaggeroth. Yes, but yeah, they didn't know that apparently. Yeah, um, they had a plan, but he did too. So, one thing I don't think I've mentioned in the whole recap of of the story is that they portrayed Duggan as an American. Oh, you're right. I think that you and I just get so used to hearing both. Yeah, didn't occur to me. Yeah, it didn't occur. Especially since I'm pretty sure he's British. So oh, most likely. You'd think his bad American accent would have stood out, but yeah. it didn't. It wasn't, as, wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. It was a little bit. Um, once I started thinking about, oh, yeah, he's supposed to be American. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a little extra emphasis that maybe an American actor would not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't as, not like many other ones. Um one that comes to mind, which and you'll we'll figure out in a second why, is in Faulty Towers, mm-hmm. the American. Um, you can definitely tell the, the way that Bruce they, Boa. Yeah, where, the way he overdoes that one is, is a little over the top that direction. Um, and then speaking of Faulty Towers, our we're talking about our, our art critics, our art buffs. Yeah. <laughs> It, that's such an odd little cameo. Yeah. But uh, the two art 
critics, art patrons. Yes, art pa- that's good. Uh, they're played by John Cleese and what, Emily. Is it Emily? I think so. Eleanor. Or, Eleanor Braun. I, I've seen her and stuff, but I didn't, didn't get the name. Sorry. Yeah, she's she's part of uh, Footlights Cambridge, I think. Mm. Cambridge Footlights. And John Cleese, obviously, is a former, at this point, former Python, Monty yeah, Python, and uh, working on Faulty Towers at the time. Yeah. Uh, probably the first series, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think the second said. series was in the early 80s. Yeah. And this isn't quite there yet. It, it certainly, he certainly looks young enough. Young enough, probably yes. Shortly after. Python. And what's interesting is they only took the job on the uh, agreement that there would be no publicity over the fact that they were going to be in the episode. So it was a secret. Uh Which is good. Oh, yeah, it's fine. I think that's cool. Part of me thinks it's a little gratuitous and a little... It breaks that suspension of disbelief a little bit, mm. but yeah. I, I get it. Don't get me wrong; I kind of get it, but still. Yeah, I guess uh, if they does that mean they like the show and wanted to be on it? Yeah, I know. You know. By the way, Bruce Bowen was Canadian. Oh, was he? Huh? Yes. I looked it up because I didn't think he was British. I'm sure there's another one. I just can't think of it right now. But as we've said before, the, um, similar thing is probably said of American actors taking on a British accent. Oh, yeah. Ask any... Um, Anybody from England about Dick Van Dyke's accent and, and Mary Poppins? <laughs> well, that's that's a particularly bad one. Um, that's exactly what they will say. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, and then of course, as we get to the end, as we were t- starting to talk about Doug in there being an American, that you know, they he is the most. Uh, most famous punch in history, you know, because he <laughs> 400 million years ago punched out an alien and saved the human race. So, yeah, so using a. Do you think I don't know that the the doctor was expecting to do that? No, I don't think not so surprised, at all. No, I don't think he was. Yeah, he was setting him up for it. It was just that they were. He was trying to stop him, and Duggan took it in his own hands um, to do it. So, the way that he knows, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. So. A little. Oh, this would have been series two of Faulty Towers. I was wrong. Ah. Series one was seventy-five. Mm. I was thinking it was later. And this is 78? 
couple little fun things about the doctor. He did some name dropping with Shakespeare's saying, but um, uh, I, I like the the way he turns it around, where she scoffs at him for being mad for meeting Shakespeare. He says, "Well, where do you think Count got this? Yeah. It's an original." So he uses that to hit, to make his point, not just to name drop. But uh, to bring his point home and to, he really gets to her because she immediately is curious when he mentions the cellar. And so she has to go and take a look at some other papers that maybe she knows is there and maybe she's not supposed to look at or something. Um, I was not real impressed with the papyrus. No, and, and to <laughs> and be honest, drawing. I'm curious how she knew it was there yet didn't know what was on it. Yeah. Because obviously she didn't know because she didn't know what he was until right. she saw it. Right. So she didn't know what was on it, but she knew it was there and went right to, well, mostly right to it. She had to find the book with the hidden thing in it. Unless she'd seen it and not known what the Jagroth was. Maybe he told her it was an Egyptian god and she being the more materialistic, high-society kind of uh, woman that she seems to be, didn't know anything about Egyptian history or gods to know that it was wrong. Yeah. And then when the doctor described the being, maybe that's what it was, maybe. why she went right to it. He described the her account as being a Jagaroff with one big green eye and green mm -hmm. squiggly skin, and then she said, oh, wait, I've seen that before. And maybe that's why she went to Yeah, it. maybe. And then it was like, oh my God, that's that's him. He lied to me. Or who is, you know, who is he really? And then that's why she gets the gun out, maybe. But <laughs> they had better um, fake Egyptian uh, antiquities in Pyramids of Mars yeah. than they do in that, the one little papyrus. Supposedly a papyrus scroll of paper. <laughs> um, but you, know, you only see it for a minute. It's just to show the point. I think that uh, she'd maybe seen this before and is double checking. It's like, oh, aha, I am to place it in time, you know. Mm -hmm. A further illustration that's probably not really needed, but. One thing that, that did look kind of nice that I think they were trying to do differently was when they were on the, in the primordial 400 million years ago, they have a like, rocky ground with, you know, puddles of primordial soup. And um, in the background, oh. they did like painted gels or did gel painting on the screens. Mm -hmm. To give like a, a hazy sun streaked sky, something like that, the background. It, it actually didn't look bad. I guess the, the gels were fading or something because of the hot lights yes. in the studio, yep. but I think it, maybe it made them blend a little bit better. <clears throat> she did have a nice, almost like a sunset type feel. 
the sky behind them. It's been worse. No, certainly. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but I think that the actual skies look nice in that part of it. The other thing that made me laugh with the doctor was when he was talking to the accountants at the start and um, he asked, well, how long have you known them? How long have you been married? Long enough. He goes, oh, how very civilized and so unhelpful, he says to her. <laughs> and then when he comes in to address the count and when he's taking them to the cellar and he says, Romana, what are you doing? Where's Duggan? And you should forget about going back in time. Because I'm gonna stop you, you know, like all in one breath. Yeah. You know, addresses everybody, you know. All the important people. What are you doing? Where is he? And stop thinking about going back in time. Do you have any particular comments? No, nothing beyond what I've already mentioned. What do you think of the hourly end? Was it, you, does it seem like a, a cheap thing that the, that Duggan knocks out the, the count and sends him back? Or no, do you I think that it was an easy out? Or I think that's think it was the effective? reason they were building up Duggan, Duggan as a violent person. So that it finally, ultimately pays off in the best way possible. And for once, it wasn't the doctor solving everything. Yeah, I, that's where I was going to go. Was that I think it was, yeah, yeah, it was a little. It was built up over the four episodes, but not Overtly. overly so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it certainly wasn't a big surprise that Duggan not you know punches him because like oh yeah Duggan's going to punch him. You know, it, mm -hmm. you just it happens and you go along with it because you've been shown his his uh, reaction to things right. so many times, but not that you were going to know that he was going to do it. He just wasn't necessarily surprised when he did it. Just, oh hey, that that works out. Um, but yes, it's um, the fact that it's somebody else who saves the day. You know, who's along with the doctor, but you know. Who, who does that and, and takes care of it. And then there's um, Herman, the muscle for the Count, who the Count's own fault that he's kept himself a secret for so long. Mm -hmm. um, Herman doesn't know who he is, and he thinks he's some invader, throws something into the field and gets rid of the Count and Scarrow. So... And presumably all of them together in the time streams because they're interconnected, I would imagine. But we don't know that. Yeah, so. we don't know. That's not... <coughs> it's not shown really in the episode. No. And, and it's probably fine that it, that it doesn't need to be. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the important part is that... Um, Herman takes care of his boss, essentially, and saves Paris from him, you know. So 
fucking bad guy takes care of the ba- a bad guy. Yeah, it's kind of funny, though, that Herman didn't recognize at least the, the suit. suit. Yes, the, the white, the beige three-piece suit, yeah. But, yeah. He was a thug. Yeah, that's the only thing I thought was maybe a little overly convenient. He's like the guard back from the 16th century Italy. He's paid to fight. He's, you know, he's paid for muscle. Yeah. And he's re- he's also looking for a violent individual that you don't ask questions about. Borgia Scarlione. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but a very good story overall. Mm-hmm. It really is. It holds up really well. Obviously, yeah. since. It gained more viewers every every seg- segment, so. And it would have been done just as well without John Cleese and the other woman as cameos. Yeah, they're just, just the little, they're just the cherry on the. Yeah, just a little. Oh, well, I know it's good. Yeah. And for that touch of comedy. Which they honestly didn't need. No. Any more comedy. No, but the, the the art history student in me really enjoyed that part. You know, talking about this thing that is not a piece of art, well, and making it into one, in a way, in in a pretentious art, way. Art is in the eye of the beholder. Yes, but they they. They were overly pretentious about it. Yes. yes. But it could still be considered art. Yes, but th- that's the, the it's the overly pretentious part that. Um, I never uh, identified with. Yeah. And still don't. So that made me laugh at that. Whether it had been him or someone else, it would have been um, just as funny. The scene as it is. Mm-hmm. It's just a little extra knowing who it was delivering it. And I can understand that that's, that does take it out of the story just a little bit, but it's a kind of an auxiliary scene anyway. It didn't need to be there, so you're probably okay with it. But it's one that I really like. Mm-hmm. If you if you had to recommend just you know a top couple of episodes from each doctor you know this would be one of the ones i pick for the mm-hmm. fourth doctor much as okay. oh much as i love the key to time i'm not i mean i would probably pick one of those at least one of those but this would be right up there too yeah this is easily in my top 10 and probably in my top five don't have very much of a there's no cliffhanger there's just an ending where they walk across the greens by the of the Eiffel Tower and leave after having make, made it to the ground level in almost no time yeah maybe they flew like mm. Romana had said before yeah <laughs> they, I suspect they must have done um, and uh, 
he said, oh, Dugan said something about, well, where are you off to next? He's, I don't know. And she says, nope, we have no idea. <laughs> so I guess we kind of leave it at that. So we, as viewers, don't either. Nope. Although he seemed to have no trouble controlling it. Mm. To get where he needed to be. Yeah. Again. I know. Such a trope. Yeah. It'd just been better not to have her fully randomize her, just to have something where you say, well, he's just gonna, he's gonna more, like manually randomly do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's just go here, you know, a spur of a second, um, decide where, so there's no planning involved that could be somehow found out about, you know? That's different than just a random setting the console true so but anyway we'll find out where, where that takes him next okay is that it yep all right tomorrow we start a new story the creature from the pit that sounds scary yeah we'll see yeah. So anyway, that's the story we will start tomorrow, so I hope you join us then, and thank you for listening.